0: Hello everyone, and welcome to this special edition of Employment Matters, brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm your host, Pete Waltz. Along with bringing you updates and critical information happening all around the world, we're always fortunate to have the chance to dial in our local ELA lawyers. These lawyers are practicing on the ground in jurisdictions all around the globe, working daily to help their clients move through difficult times. On the program, We Span the Globe, we get updates on critical information from ELA members in each region of the world. Today, we're chatting with our member from Maryland and a member from California. Joining us today on the program are Parker Thaney, attorney at Shaw Rosenthal in Baltimore, and Dan Hanman, attorney at Hirschfeld Kramer in Los Angeles. Today, our guests are going to update us on a new ban on non-competes in D.C. Parker, Dan, welcome to the program, gentlemen. How are you today? Great, thank
1: you. Thanks for having us on the program.
0: Let's get started. Parker, why don't we start with you? Let's talk about this new ban on non-competes in D.C. What's it all about? Sure. So
1: broadly speaking, the District of Columbia introduced legislation to ban non-competes. It's just what it sounds like. But there's a bit more to it. And as with any law, the devil is in the details. So the law prohibits an employer from requiring or even requesting that an employee sign an agreement that includes a non-competition provision. And from there, we have to sort of untangle what exactly do some of these phrases mean? And we all sort of believe we have this idea of what a non-competition agreement is, but the District of Columbia has its own unique perspective. It's one that prohibits an employee from being simultaneously or subsequently employed by another person. It extends to prohibiting an employee from providing services for pay for another person as well, or from prohibiting an employee from operating his or her own business. So this is a bit broader than what we might typically think of in terms of a non-competition agreement. It doesn't just relate to competing entities. It relates to prohibitions on employment with any other entities. When we talk about the definitions and what the law provides, we also need to look at what The definition of employer and employee are, and there we're talking about pretty broad definitions as well. An employee being anyone who performs work in the District of Columbia on behalf of an employer. So what's an employer? An employer is any business operation in Washington, D.C. Now, I will say there are some interesting quirks in the law, and one of them comes up when we talk about the definition of employee. We've got a few exceptions for things that are not surprising, like volunteers, but others that are a little bit more surprising, like babysitters. So babysitters are not employees, meaning you could ask your babysitter to sign a non-compete. I don't know why that's in there, but it's an interesting little exception.
0: Yeah, I'm not sure how babysitters are going to react to that.
1: (laughs) Isn't that something? The other area that I found a little bit interesting is there's also an exception for someone called a medical specialist. And generally speaking, those are highly compensated healthcare providers. So an area where a lot of times us attorneys sort of think twice about non-competition agreements due to public policy reasons, here we've got a specific carve out in the law that permits non-competition agreements for so-called medical specialists. Beyond banning non-competes, there's a couple of other components of the law that I think are particularly interesting. One is a notification requirement, and the notification requirement mandates that employers, as defined in the statute, offer notification of this new ban, and they offer specific language in the statute itself to current employees, new employees, and inquiring employees within certain timeframes. And so we've got not only the ban, but a mandatory obligation to provide notification to folks. There are also things in the law like prohibitions on retaliation for folks that refuse to sign a non-compete or complain or question non-compete agreements. So we've got a number of different components in terms of what the law says, and then there are a variety of penalties and damages that are available to employees.
0: Very interesting. Dan, let's bring you into the conversation. Being from California, non-competes are not a new thing, or banning them rather is not a new thing. I know you've been advising clients in that environment for quite some time. Given your experience in that, what kind of thoughts can you offer Parker as he advises clients in DC?
2: Well, the the first thing I want to say is that once we finish with this podcast, I'm calling my babysitter and having her sign a non-compete. So I, I told Parker before we started. I used to be in the the D.C. area, and I've now been in California for sixteen plus years. And so, in a way, for me, when I came to California, it was an entirely new world. When it came to non-competes, I'd say non-competes were fifty percent of my workload in the Mid Atlantic, and they're very small percentage here. So, you know, really, my advice to my clients was: you have to adapt, or or you will perish. The truth was. There really wasn't much to adapt to, in my opinion. My experience has been that the people who are the bad actors, who you really want to prevent from damaging your business, tend to leave a trail. And there are ways that you can keep them from damaging your business, whether you have a non compete or not. And the best example of that, perhaps, is this guy, Anthony Lewandowski, who this made the front page of the Wall Street Journal. He was a, an engineer for Google in their self driving vehicle division. He was recruited by Uber. He was a very knowledgeable guy. He was paid a boatload of money and he was caught red handed taking all of the data that he needed to leave Google and go to Uber. It's a huge settlement. Go- Google actually ended up taking equity in Uber as part of the settlement. He got an 18 month prison term. Now, granted, this is an extreme case. But it illustrates an important point, which is that whether you have a non-compete or not, there are ways that you can track down the really bad actors, the people that you want to keep from harming your business. And I would say you really have to focus on two things. Number one, since we're in a service economy, your, your most important asset is probably your clients. So you have to do everything you can to cloak your client's their preferences and everything about them in secrecy. And the second thing is your data. You want to make it impossible to, or as difficult as possible to take your data. And you want to have as many proactive measures, as many safeguards on your databases and things like that in order to make sure that these types of things don't happen to you. So you can do that through trade secret laws, through confidentiality agreements. In California, you can still do agreements prohibiting solicitation of coworkers. We'll probably talk a little bit about what they call garden leave agreements. There are still ways to try and keep your clients and your information safe.
0: Sage advice from Dan. Parker, given that, what are some of the other unique challenges posed by the DC law?
1: Sure. So when you think about the District of Columbia, it's a bit different than a lot of the jurisdictions we typically think of because it's very small. And the folks that work in the District of Columbia oftentimes work in Maryland and Virginia as well. And so there are unique challenges posed to employees that are performing some of their work, for example, in Maryland or Baltimore or Northern Virginia, as well as the District of Columbia. And for employers that want to impose restrictions on those employees, it can be quite a challenge to try to figure out how you might draft an agreement that would pass muster under this DC law, but still restrict competition in other jurisdictions. And of course, those tools that Dan was just mentioning are all still available. Confidentiality agreements are specifically carved out. There's no mention of non-solicitation agreements, but there's a committee report that suggests that those are still available in the district. And of course, trade secret laws, both local and federal, are going to still be useful tools to employers.
0: So, Dan, given some of these jurisdictional challenges, you know we've got a tiny jurisdiction there, and yet they they are certainly reaching deep into some of those areas. What other experience can you share with us that would help Parker along with some of this thinking with clients here
2: you know it it just occurred to me that as we're discussing this new d c law that there's discussion in Congress about shrinking the District of Columbia to an even smaller postage stamp than it already is, and making the residential areas of D.C. its own state. And I wonder how much of an effect that would have on anything. But jurisdictionally, I can tell you, in California for a long time, there was a view that you would put a choice of law or a choice of forum provision in the agreement saying, even though you, employee work in California... This will be governed by New York law because New York is where our headquarters are, for example. California has since rejected that. There's actually a specific law on the books that says that they won't enforce choice of law provisions, choosing another state's more favorable law when it comes to non compete agreements for employees that work in California. And I think as the law begins to change in other jurisdictions, you will see more of those types of provisions pop up. But in the meantime, It doesn't hurt to try to have your agreement enforced by another state's law. What I would say in my experience in California before this statute was passed a few years back was this. When you choose that state, when you choose to have your agreement governed by another state's law, make it a state that has a real connection to the employment relationship. Don't pick Delaware because Delaware is the state that your company's incorporated. Courts tend to look at that as a ministerial act and that there's no real connection between that state and your agreement. Pick a state where you have a large number of employees, where maybe this particular employee reports to someone in another state. Pick a state that has a real connection, or the legal term is a real nexus to the relationship.
0: So interesting thoughts there, Dan. And now based on your experience, and Parker, I think in the case that you're having in D.C., this looks like a trend that may continue on. So guys, do you think based on your collective experience, there's a broader trend towards limiting or banning non-competes altogether? Parker, what do you think?
1: You know, I think that we are seeing a trend and there are are a number of states that have begun to take positions that either ban or limit the availability of non-competes and oftentimes leave open the possibility of non-solicitation agreements. But You're also starting to see, I can say, for example, in Maryland, increased judicial scrutiny of these types of agreements, and the increased judicial scrutiny really builds on top of itself. As states look to other states' jurisprudence, they will continue to build on the developments that we're starting to see, not just in legislatures, but also in the judiciary.
0: Dan, what do you think?
1: Yeah, I
2: I totally agree with Parker. I would say this. My own personal view is that non-competes, true non-competes are a bit of a dinosaur. If you think about it, the the classic non-compete and what every case you see reported on non-competes talks about is they have to be limited in time and they have to be limited in their geographic scope. And the classic example was one physician sells a medical practice to another physician. And so within a 10-mile radius, you can't open a competing practice. That made sense at a certain point in time. But now with the internet and the expansion, the global reach of technology, non-competes, true non-competes become less important. And so, you know, in my view, what it really comes down to is figuring out what are your most important assets and protecting them. If you're in a jurisdiction where you can protect the solicitation of your clients, then do. If you're in a jurisdiction where, and I don't know of any jurisdiction that prohibits confidentiality agreements. Or trade secret types agreements, do it, use those, use those with regularity. Those are the assets that you really need to protect. And then the third thing I would say is if you're in a jurisdiction where you can have a non-compete but the non-compete has to be very narrowly tailored in order to be enforceable, really be selective in the population of employees that you wanna apply it to. You don't need to restrict low-level salespeople or clerical employees from competing against you. They're not going to compete against you. They're not going to damage your business. Pick the employees that actually will have a debt, could cause significant damage to your business, and be selective in how you apply it to them.
0: Dan, that's some great insight. Earlier in the program, you mentioned garden leave agreements. Let's talk about those if we can before we wrap up.
2: Yeah, so garden leave agreements are this crazy concept that actually I think it developed in the U.K., And hence the term garden leave so the concept was we will pay you for a period of time not to work but in the meantime while you're not working we're also protecting our assets like our customers and giving ourselves the ability to try and retain our customers while you sit in your garden on leave that was the the concept of it and it expanded to the us and you see it a lot now in financial services industries in particular and it has been tried here in California. There are, to my knowledge, no rulings on, in California on whether you can have them. But the concept is that we will pay you your normal salary for a period of time. And in exchange for that, you won't work. You will be listed as an employee. You will continue to get your health care. But you won't actively work against us. You won't go to one of our competitors as long as we pay you. My experience has been that if they're, they're very expensive, so my point about selectivity is important. You have to be selective about who you choose to apply them to. And more importantly, I think you need to keep the time of the garden leave as short as you possibly can. I don't think a court is going to view a garden leave agreement that goes on for over a year favorably. I think if you can keep it to like six months, my view, that's a good rule of thumb.
0: Interesting concept. Gentlemen, both of you, again, focusing on what's going to be a new trend. And, you know, as the workplace continues to change and people get more access to technology, their ability to compete or not compete is going to continue to change as well. So it's been a very interesting discussion. Thanks a lot for your time, Parker and Dan. Appreciate it. Enjoy the rest of your day.
2: Thank you. Thank you.
0: If you'd like to connect with Parker or Dan, you can find their bios by clicking on their name in the description of this podcast. Also visit ela.law to receive invitations to our upcoming webinars, download white papers, get access to on-demand content from our online library, or use the ELA's exclusive Global Employer Handbook. You've been listening to Employment Matters, a podcast brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest network of labor and employment lawyers and the best law firms around the globe. I'm Pete Waltz. Thanks for listening.